0: morning. It is Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 9, and it's page 741. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was punished. He was assigned to the, um, yeah, assigned to the grave, with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you very much, James.
1: Especially since you were missing your glasses. I hope you don't mind me saying that. That's, that's great, thank you. <laughs> We're going to have our New Testament reading as well now from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 27. Um, slightly longer reading. Um, feel free to, it might be, be familiar to many of us, feel free to listen and, and as well as follow, of course, um, and I'll uh, read chapter 27, verse 11 uh, through to 50, Matthew chapter 27. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a, a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, And the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. I'm going to hand over to Gareth now.
2: Sorry, I'm not very interested in the back of my jeans. I just have my uh, microphone on button there. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Do you want to hear something good this morning? Yeah. Well, you're in the right place at the right time. God's message for us this morning is a wonderful message. Here's our structure for the morning. Who do not do go do? Who do not do go do? We're in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 9. And firstly, we're going to see who. Who is Isaiah talking about? Now, if you were here last week, you already know the answer. But we're just going to hold off just for a brief moment and pretend that we don't. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 9. We're going to look at who is he talking about? Uh, Then we're going to zoom in on the first half, verses 4 to 6, and see what did he do? What did this person do in 4 to 6? And then Isaiah 53, 7 to 9. We're going to see what he didn't do. What he did do? then what he didn't do, and then we're going to think, all right, what do we go and do? Before we go further, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are those in need of mercy and grace this morning. I, I do not know the situations of the people in the room right now, what our morning has been like, what our week ahead is like, but you do. We pray for your help, your kindness, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who? Who? Who is Isaiah talking about? He's writing about 700 BC. And we're thinking, who who is he talking about? Surely he took up our pain. We considered him. Who is Isaiah talking about? Well, in the book of Acts, uh, we were looking at Acts, weren't we, not long ago, in our uh, previous series. Uh, There's a passage we didn't get to look at in Acts 8. I'll just tell you the the gist. Um, There is an Ethiopian official. He's heading home from Jerusalem in his chariot like the best car of the day, and he's zooming along. And we're told he is reading this passage in Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. It's quoted for us in Acts. And God the Holy Spirit brings Philip alongside the chariot. So Philip's running alongside, and and they have this conversation, like probably, you know, when you're out of breath, what are you doing? And the Ethiopian's very calm because he's got the book and he's sitting down. I'm reading this. I don't understand it. Who who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or is it someone else? And Philip says, "I can," let me on and I can tell you. And so the chariot stops and Philip gets in. And we read this in Acts chapter 8 verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture. So he's looking at the same passage we have today. Philip is looking at that with the Ethiopian official. And it says, beginning with that very passage of scripture... He told him the good news about Jesus. That's our answer. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ, the man born 700 years after Isaiah is writing. 700 years later. It's Jesus. That's the Bible's answer to who this is. Okay. So what did Philip pick up on? Because he said beginning with that passage, it says beginning with that passage, he must have picked out details from Isaiah 53 to say, this is Jesus, and that's Jesus. Now, we're not told what the details are, particularly, but maybe we can guess at some of them. Have a look at Isaiah 53. We're going to go quite quickly, uh, but we're going to think about what we see in Isaiah 53 and then what we heard in that longer reading that another Philip gave us, Matthew 27. All right, but keep Isaiah 53 open. First detail, surely he, Jesus, took up our pain. Where do we see that in Matthew 27? How did Jesus take pain? Well, he was crucified. Crucified. A method of execution so horrible, that's where we get our word excruciating from. The worst kind of pain imaginable. Physical pain, shame pain, from people seeing you hanging on a cross. Jesus took our pain. Then, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. How was Jesus pierced? Well, there's one way that Matthew shows us. He is crucified. To be crucified, you are nailed through your hands or, or maybe your wrists to a wooden cross and your feet too. You're, you're nailed there. Jesus was pierced. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. I don't know about you, one of the most moving things for me in the crucifixion narrative is where the soldiers beat him. I don't know why. It just, it just gets me. They put a crown of thorns on him. And the other day, I picked up a bag in our, gar- uh, in our house. It had garden waste in it, and I grabbed it a bit hard. And I had to recoil. I looked at my thumb. Got almost a very poetic drop of blood. Looked in the bag. Rose trimmings, rosebush trimmings. The thorns on those things. That was just one. Imagine having it pressed into your head. Not by accident, on purpose. And then the guards, they beat him with a stick on the head. We're told, again and again. Not just once, again and again. Brutality, oppressed. Jesus was afflicted as he is spat on and mocked. Still in verse 7 of Isaiah 53. Yet he did not open his mouth. Did you catch Pilate, Pontius Pilate's amazement that Jesus wouldn't defend himself? Pilate couldn't believe it. He's saying, look, I'm going to let you off if you just say it wasn't me. And Jesus doesn't say anything. Pilate keeps having several goes at him. Come on, say something. Jesus did not open his mouth. Still in verse 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And Matthew records... The guards led him out to be crucified. Jesus walked up the hill to Golgotha, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Judgment, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was handed over. Pilate said, you are now under judgment. You're going to get maybe what you don't deserve, but you're going to get it. He was judged. Verse 8. Who of his generation protested? Who protested when Jesus was sentenced? No one. Not his friends. They'd run away. And what did the crowd say? When Pilate said, what what about Jesus? What should I do with him? What did the crowd say? Crucify him. They didn't protest. They weren't even quiet. They pressed the cause. Take him away. Crucify him. And so he was cut off, verse 8. Cut off from the land of the living, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He was dead. And then verse 8, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. How do we see the punishment of Jesus for sin? For the tra- that's what transgression is. Uh, sin is quite a jargon word as well. Wrongdoing, bad stuff, ignoring God, living our own way. All the stuff that we know is definitely bad. And then some of those things that, oh, actually, if we're honest with ourselves, we do wrong too. Well, there are two details in Matthew 27. There is darkness that covers the land. It is unnaturally dark. And in the Bible, darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And then Jesus himself shows us what is going on in his experience. He cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? abandoned me, put me through this. Jesus goes through punishment for sin. Now we'll come back to that thought because it sounds like Jesus is almost a passive actor. What what are you doing, Lord? I don't want this and you shouldn't have done it. If that's your question, hold it for a moment. Let's just take at the face value that Jesus was punished for our wrongdoing. Keep going, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Jesus wasn't crucified by himself. There were two other people next to him, murderous thieves, one on his left, one on his right. He was crucified with the scum, as they would have said. He was crucified with the wicked and assigned a grave with them. And then finally in verse 9, though he had done no violence, he had done no violence Now, that's not in our reading, but we're told in the Gospel accounts that earlier, when people come to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword and cuts off a servant's ear. Right, he defends his master. And if Jesus was a man of violence, he'd say, yes, and the other one. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, Peter, he heals the ear. What crime has he committed, asks Pilate? And the answer is, well, there isn't one. There's no crime pointed to. Jesus is not a man of violence, and neither, verse 9, is there any deceit in his mouth. He did not say anything wrong. He was entirely trustworthy. Imagine that. A leader who is entirely trustworthy and blameless at everything they say. If Jesus had been on Twitter, they would have gone through his whole feed, and they would not have found anything wrong. Nothing. No problematic historic tweets which he'd learned from. Nothing. The only thing they said he'd said wrong was that he was the Son of God. Ah, but he was. And he is. No deceit in his mouth. So, who is this? That was our first question. Who? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, all right. Maybe Philip picked up on some of those details. And the Ethiopian official put his faith in Jesus. He saw those words written 700 years ago are about a man who was crucified now wow, I'm going to believe in him. It's Jesus. All right, that was who. Let's move on to do. Let's move on to do. What did Jesus do? Dropping things here. I'm going to try something a little different, which hopefully will work. That's a way of uh, building up either, uh, well, it's building up attention, whether it pays off or not. Let's see. Okay, good. All right, we're going to look through this verse. It's a little test here. Is this going to work? Mm Hmm. That come up? Can you see that yellow? Is that bright enough? Can anyone not see? I've just put yellow in the top right. Can anyone not see that? Assuming you can see the screen. Sorry, you're uh, maybe a bit far out. I'll, I'll still talk it through. It's not going to be a silent bit. Alright, here we are. We're going to look first at what is ours in this, these verses. This is Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. What is ours? Well, here we are. First thing. Our pain. Jesus took our pain. I'll undo that. There we are. Our pain. There we are. What's the next hour? What else did we have? Our suffering. Thank you. Verse five, what else was there? Our transgressions. And our iniquities. Then verse six. Each of us has turned to our own way. And then the final thing it's not said as ours, but it's there the iniquity of us all. Ours. What is ours in these verses? There's nothing else. Our pain, our suffering, our transgressions, our iniquities, our own way, the iniquity of us all. If you had a box labelled us, ours, contains this. Nothing else. No added ingredients. What does Isaiah 53 say about us? About you and me? It's not very complimentary, is it? It says there is suffering. We have suffering and pain. I think we'd probably agree with that, wouldn't we? Whether now or in the past or in our future or those around us, corporately we have pain and suffering here. Yes. But what about the other things? Transgressions and iniquities. Uh, Going our own way is probably the easiest way to understand that. We have God's way, the perfect way that he's told us to live. Love him and love others. And we have gone our own way which means not loving him and not loving others. The Bible is very, very challenging about human nature. It says that each of us, you and me, are both victim and villain. Not necessarily in the same proportions, and it's not comparing one with another, but we are all victims and villains. We are victims because everyone in the world has gone their own way, and because of that, they don't love us. One way or another, they don't love us. And so we have pain and suffering. And maybe you know that this morning. Pain and suffering because of what others have done to you, whether they intended it or not. We are all victims to one degree or another. But we're also villains. We have all gone our own way. Transgressions, iniquities, sin. We have all ignored God and not loved his people, not loved those he's made. And so we have done harm to other people. It's inevitable. If we go away from God's perfect way, we must be imperfect and therefore hurt. And so we are villains. Each of us will have hurt others. Not to the same proportions necessarily, but we're all victims and villains. That is ours. That's what's in the box marked us, you and me. Okay. Okay. So that's us. But what about him? What about Jesus? Well, let's see what he did, shall we? Still on the same verses. What did he do? Well, first line, he took up our pain. And he bore our suffering. What else do we see? Well, he was punished, and he was stricken, and he was afflicted. What else do we see about Jesus? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He has punishment and wounds. And finally, the Lord has laid on him. What did Jesus get? What did he do? Well, he took up the things that are ours, our pain and our suffering, and he reached in and took those. We thought he was being punished by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our wrongdoing. God has laid on him. Do you see that? Jesus takes our wrongdoing. He chose to do that. He took it up. He took it up. Who deserved what? Who deserved the pain and the suffering and the punishment? Not Jesus. No deceit, no violence in his mouth, in his life. For us, we do deserve it. We might not feel like we do, but before God, we do. He is the judge and he says, we deserve this. And yet, Jesus came and took those things. What did we get? What are we left with? We're left with healing and peace. It brought us peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. We started off as victims and villains, and yet we end up at peace with God, and healed to our very core. Okay, I'll take that down, if I can. Good. What do you call that? When someone has something, and someone has something else, and then it gets reversed. It's a swap, yeah, it's a swap, or an exchange. Uh, The theological term is penal substitution. Penal from the word penalty or punishment, and substitution, a swap. And you can see it happening here, can't you? It's really clear. We had it, and then he took it, and we are left with good stuff. We started with bad, he took the bad, we get the good. That's quite a clear exchange. Now those words, substitution, swap, exchange, they don't hit the heart, do they? I don't know about you, if I hear substitution, I think of like last five minutes, bring on a fresh pair of legs into the game to try and get back. Or a swap, I think of like Pokemon cards. Yeah, got, need, got, need. Or exchange, like financial exchange rate. None of them really hit the heart unless you absolutely love our sport. What is it? Jesus took our place. That's what he did. He took our place. He stepped in. Imagine imagine that a world leader emerges from a country, doesn't matter where, and this world leader is brilliant. He's charismatic, he's able, he's a man of the people, and very quickly his country starts to turn around. All the charts that should be going up are going up, all the charts that should be going down are going down. His country love him, he's uniting the people, and there's such a feeling of optimism in that place. And then, not only that, he starts to exert his influence on a world stage. He goes to crises areas, where there's been war for ages. And he gets people around a table and they start talking. And where there was war, there's now a ceasefire. And then ceasefires to peace. And not only on the conflict side, but on our world problems. He gets everyone around the table to really make progress on how we treat the planet, How, how we share our resources. What a world leader that would be. A beacon of hope. Now imagine this world leader is out walking one day with the people, and the world leader's got a bodyguard. Someone who's paid to look after them. Very well paid, very well trained. But suddenly, out of the crowd steps a disturbed gunman who pulls a gun out and is about to start firing. Now the bodyguard doesn't do anything because his heart's not in it. He actually doesn't care. And as the bullets start firing, the world leader steps to the side, but not behind the bodyguard. He steps in front of him in front of the bodyguard. And now it's the leader who's hit by the bullets, who's blinded, whose face is ripped open, who suffers awful internal injuries before the gunman is stopped. Would that ever happen? No. There's no example of that. Why would the greater die for the lesser? Why would the hope of the universe give their life for someone whose heart wasn't even in the job? That is what Jesus did for you. He took your place. He stepped into the firing line. You deserved it because we all deserved it. I deserved it. And Jesus took our place. He stepped in front of us. He stepped in front of us. If you're new to church here, we've covered a lot already. You might be thinking, wow, the Bible's quite complicated. The Bible is a big book and it's rich and full of things. But I hope you can see that Jesus is someone special. He is unlike anyone else you've ever met or ever will meet. He is a wonderful person who steps in to take punishment that he didn't didn't deserve for our sake. And so becoming a Christian, the cry of someone becoming a Christian is, Lord, take my place. That's what it is to become a Christian. Lord, take my place. It's not the cry of someone who deserves it. Lord, take my place because I've been pretty good this week. It's the cry of someone who is desperate. Not deserving, but desperate. Lord, take my place. I have no because. I'm just desperate. Please. Jesus offers that. Peace and healing for anyone who comes to him. Because that's what he did he took our place we need to move on that's what he did do he took our place what did he not do and we'll go more briefly here verses 7 to 9 what did he not do well it's there in verse 7 particularly he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth and then again in the end of verse 7 as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth he didn't open his mouth. He didn't say anything. We saw it in Matthew 27. Why don't we flick forward there now and see where Jesus does not speak? Matthew 27. I don't have a page number for you, but if someone does have a church Bible, could you just shout out a page number, please? 998. That was fast. I can't verify. An independently verified 998? Nine, nine, yeah, okay. Thanks, Andrew. I thought I might have it upside down and it was 866 it would be, wouldn't it? Okay, Matthew 27. How did Jesus not open his mouth? Well, we've seen Pilate, haven't we? We've seen Pilate. Verse 13, Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. No reply to the great amazement of the governor. Didn't reply even to a small thing. Not even a single charge. Jesus did not open his mouth. How about the soldiers then? How about the soldiers? Verse 29. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they spat him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. He said nothing. He said nothing as they mock him. Oh, Lord. He doesn't say, actually, I am. He says nothing. Passers-by mock him. Do we see that? Actually, first, let's look at the rebels. Verse 38. Two rebels were crucified, with one on his right and one on his left. Then those who passed by hurled insults at him, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, I'm here because I'm the Son of God who loves you. He definitely doesn't say, right, that's it. You've ruined it. I came here to sort out your problems. You're just pushing me away. He says nothing. He says nothing. Then the chief priests, verse 41, they mock him too. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Yes, I'm saving you. To save you, I must give my life. And he says, nothing. And then it's the thieves, verse 44, again, who heap insults on him and as Jesus hangs there abused by those who aren't who deserve what they're getting he says nothing have you ever had to keep your mouth shut how hard is it when you're right and they are wrong can you feel that that injustice I'm right if only they knew I could defend myself if only they knew they would be quiet What do we learn about Jesus? He was a man of (laughs) incomparable self-control. For sure. How godly. Men are often encouraged in the Bible, be self-controlled. Here is our example. An example to me. When I think something's not quite fair. If it's for God, go to Jesus. But why? Much more importantly, why would Jesus do this? Why would he take up our suffering and our pain? And why would he just say nothing? Why would he not do the thing that would save him? Why? For God so loved the world. That is why this happened. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, might believe, whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Love. That is why the servant Jesus came to take up our sin. That is why the servant Jesus did not open his mouth because of God's love for the world. We were thinking a little bit earlier, well, hang on, is this just being done to Jesus as a passive actor? No. Because choosing not to speak in all those situations was harder than choosing to speak, wasn't it? Wouldn't it be just so easy to say, oh yeah, but... To stay quiet that whole time Jesus chose over and over and over and over again to say nothing. It would have been the easiest thing in the world just to let it slip. Why? Why did Jesus say nothing? Because he loves us. Jesus loves us. There are some who find Isaiah 53 very challenging because they think, I don't like this idea of penal substitution, that Jesus takes punishment for us. But we have to see it is there, firstly, in the text. And just as importantly as it actually being there, if we do away with that idea, we actually minimise the love of Jesus. He came to do that for us and he kept quiet for us over and over again. And if we say, yeah, but he wasn't doing that thing, we minimise his love instead of seeing it for what it is, glorious and true and full and the greatest expression of love you have ever received or ever will receive Jesus, God, loves us. Very simple. Very true. All right, so what do we go and do? Who? Jesus. Do? He took up our pain, our victimhood, and our villainy. What did he not do? He did not open his mouth. So what do we go and do? All right, what do we go and do? Well, it doesn't tell us to do anything, does it? It doesn't say to go and do something. So why don't we just let it wash over us and into our hearts to soak in? We're in our second circle in the period of our church life, thinking about our father's family. So let's let that wash over us and seep in. What does God think about Christchurch? church? It's not a trick question. What does God think about Christchurch? church? What does Jesus feel about us as his people? He loves us. He loves us. Now, that is not a comment on our track record or anything we do. Do you see that? It is not a comment on our track record. We do not say he loves us so everything's perfect, that we are doing or saying. No. Much more fundamental than that, we say Jesus loves us because he died for us while we were victims and villains. He took our sin when we did not deserve any goodness. He loves us. And so that means the Christian next to you or in front of you or behind you Jesus loves them. And you know what? Maybe they don't know that today. Maybe they're struggling to believe it today. If you might do one thing, why not tell them? If you feel it, if you know it today that Jesus loves his people, and he does, then you could encourage your brother or sister. Jesus loves you. And it's not trite, because it's true. It doesn't make everything okay but it's a perspective that changes everything. Jesus loves you. And that is how we might love one another as we go on from here. It's, we don't love each other because I think, oh, I like that thing about you that you do. Or I like that resource that you bring me. No, I love you. I'm called to love you because Jesus loves you. And so that is our fuel for when there are people in church that we don't quite click with. Yeah? That occasionally happens, doesn't it? Lord, you love this person so much. Not because of their track record, but because you love them. Help me to love them because you love them. And that is a much deeper, fuller well of love than anything you could muster up because of that person's personality or stage of life or interests or whatever it might be. We love one another. What difference does it make for us in our lives as we let this sink in? Well, just imagine, one more illustration, you're driving along in Harpenden in your car, and you, obviously in your car, or maybe on a bike, anyway, it doesn't matter, you're driving along, and you notice a pothole, and you have to swerve around it. There are a couple of potholes on there, yeah? And you find yourself getting a little bit cross. Ugh. Potholes, potholes, should I pay my taxes? They fixed that one, and now it's gone worse, just get a bit cross. Let's say that happens. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, at a junction, another vehicle hits you. And suddenly, your life's in danger. Your life's in danger. Just from a moment of normality to life in danger. And as you're lying there, crushed, you think this might be it. Until you hear sirens. And a rescue comes. And you're pulled out of the wreckage. And you are helped. And you are healed. The next day, when you speak to a friend, what do you not talk about? potholes why they're there aren't they they haven't gone away what's changed you've been reminded how precious life is you've been reminded what you have and this morning Christchurch happened, Harpenden we have been reminded of what we have we have the love of Jesus Christ himself who took up our sin and gave us peace and healing we have his love that's what you have we have it it cannot be taken away Jesus loves us this much. Not this much, not that much, that much. So tomorrow, when you wake up, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. So we uh, pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe prompted by this bookmark. How can I pray this? Because Jesus loves me. And if you have a great day tomorrow, Jesus loves me. And if you have a terrible day tomorrow, Jesus loves me. And if you are dying tomorrow, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves us. I told you it was good, because he's good. As the musicians come up, a moment of quiet, just to let that sink in to pray, and then we will sing.